Good morning. I'll say this like I did last week. Depending on where you fall on your love or, or tiredness of the book of Acts, today is a good day in the kingdom. We are going to be wrapping up our time in this book, uh, and it's been a, a fun journey. Um, I, was, I was thinking about this week as I was finishing some, some exams and other things and, and craziness, how much I, I now love to read. And if you knew me perhaps before my freshman year of college, you'd be very surprised by that. I used to hate reading, like, like the plague. Uh, my mom, you can, you can ask her if she's ever visiting, and say, what did Vince used to read before he graduated high school? And other than like tech magazines, that was probably the only things I ever picked up that had actual words on it. Uh, and that, to some degree, probably even includes school. My high school GPA will attest to that. The Lord did something with me my first year of college, and I never understand it, but his grace is sufficient. Uh, and so we'll live with that. I, I, I really hate reading at, at that point. And so in ninth grade, they assigned us Romeo and Juliet. And as a ninth grader, now you have to remember, I came here from Germany in eighth grade. So the story of Romeo and Juliet was entirely foreign to me. I'd never heard it before. I'd never heard of it. And we're reading this book. And I'm finding myself really enjoying Romeo and Juliet as a ninth grader which is weird because I hate to read. So I'm reading this book, and I finished this thing in like one day. I think they assigned us like, you know, a certain amount per, per week. And, and the first day of class that we're supposed to be talking about the book, I come in having read the whole thing, and I was furious because the ending stinks. <laughs> it's terrible. What kind of, what person would do that? You're reading the book, and they're, they're in love, and it's this wonderful story, and then they're just at the end, no, if I'm spoiling this for you, I'm really sorry, but you're late to the party. They both die. <laughs> what kind of ending is that? That is no fun. <laughs> and so that kind of destroyed my desire to read any and all fiction ever again. And to this day, I don't enjoy reading fiction. I will read the nerdiest of 600-page theology books and enjoy myself because I'm sick and twisted, but... I just don't enjoy reading fiction books. It really ruined it for me. There was a hope for a little bit there when we read Lord of the Flies, but that one didn't end well either, so then it, just, it was just doomed to never enjoy those books. Sometimes we don't like the ending. We invest time and we, we look at how things go, and the ending seems to be something that is rough. For some of you, at initial glance, the book of Acts doesn't end particularly well. Um, it ends with Paul going to prison and ending up in Rome. And so this week, this, this day, this Lord's Day, I want to take a look at this, this section of Paul being in prison and going to Rome. The problem is that it's one Sunday morning, and it's the last like seven, eight chapters of the book of Acts, starting with his arrest, leading all the way to him being in house arrest in Rome. And so I want to I look through that scripture at, at certain points but to guide our thinking, I want to go back to something I said last week. And that was that the arrest and the trial and the, the stuff that Paul goes through, especially as, as we see it written in the book of Acts, has an unbelievably striking resemblance to what our Lord Jesus Christ went through. And it's not by accident, because... Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so we see, if you look at it from a literary standpoint, there's similarities. But the things that Paul works through, has to go through, are eerily similar than the things that Jesus went through in his time. So I thought as we look to wrap up these last few chapters, 
that we try to kind of compare and see if we can't kind of mimic, to some degree at least, not perfectly, but the story of Jesus and see how we might see it in Paul. So we'll, we'll go through a couple different verses and we'll look at some, some different points of how they are similar. And then we'll draw some conclusions from, from that and from the book of Acts as a whole to close our time this morning. Let's look at the first one. Jesus and Paul really both want to get to Jerusalem. All through, Paul starts to drop hints about this all the way in Acts 19.21. He wants to get back. He says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And he says, after I've been there, I also have to go to Rome. Jesus clearly, towards the end of his teaching ministry, wants to get to Jerusalem. That's the whole goal. They both have a same mindset of where they want to end up. They want to get to Jerusalem because that's the epicenter. That's where everything's at. They want to get there together. Second, both of them, Jesus and Paul, have people that try to talk them out of it. Well-meaning people, right? In Jesus's case, the disciples over and over again, why, why are you going? I have to go and I will die. Well, why, why, why? And eventually at some point he tells them to get behind him. People, well-meaning, faithful, loving, caring people consistently try to talk both Jesus and Paul out of going where the Lord has called them to go. Here's Paul's. On the next day, this is in chapter 21, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While, they, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and all the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. People talk him out of it. I think sometimes we do this. We try to talk people out of things that are hard and encourage them to take the easy road. They don't want Paul to suffer. This doesn't make the people bad. This doesn't make the disciples bad when they try to avoid Jesus going to encounter suffering. He's, he's their rabbi. They don't want him to be hurt. But the Lord sometimes calls us to things that are difficult. And Paul is being called to Jerusalem. And he rebukes them and he says, no, the Lord tells me to go. I'm going to go. You see the similarities there. Number three, both of them are initially welcomed in the city. Here's what we see when Paul gets to Jerusalem. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul comes into Jerusalem. He's received well, and he's telling them all the things that have happened. It's kind of like when that person comes home from a mission trip and you hear them talk about all the ways that God was at work. It's an encouraging time. We love those kinds of Sundays, don't we? There was a celebration and a jubilance initially upon Paul's return. If you recall the scene when Jesus enters Jerusalem, what do we have? People are waving their palms. There is a triumphal entry 
where Jesus is received with gladness and thanksgiving. But soon things turn. Both Paul and Jesus were seized by the Jews and then turned over to the Roman authorities. Here's the account of the arrest of Paul. And as you listen to it, I just want you to hear the similarities that we see when we look back to Jesus' arrest. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Tephemus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Paul's in the temple, and they drag him outside of the temple. Probably, we can assume, into the the outermost court of the temple, where the Gentiles get to be. They drag him out of the holy places. And it says towards the end of his arrest... Right, that the Romans, they come in because of this commotion and they break it up and they get him. And it's almost good that the Romans are getting a hold of him because he was being beaten within an inch of his life. He's so beaten because of the violence of the crowd that the soldiers actually have to carry Paul to the barracks. We see the echoes of Jesus suffering, being beaten as he's arrested and on trial. Number five, <clears throat> this is where things get super weird. Or sorry, six is where things get super weird. Hold that thought. The religious leaders in both instances plot to kill both Jesus and Paul. In Paul's case, it happens much later. We see that it was when he was already arrested. When it was day, Acts 23, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So they say, hey, get Paul. Tell tell them we want to see Paul so that we can question him. And we'll be waiting on the way. He'll never even make it to you. We're just going to ambush him and kill him. We find out that People heard this being talked about, and they end up protecting Paul, and he doesn't end up being brought out to be killed. But the Jews conspire to kill both Jesus and Paul. The trials are oddly similar. We have Acts chapter 21 through 26 recounts the the whole nature of Paul's trial, how he goes from place to place and person to person. 
And what we see is that both times they are apprehended by religious leaders and then handed off to the Jewish people, or handed off to the Roman people, both times Jesus and Paul get sent to Roman governors. In Jesus' case, he goes to Pilate. In Paul's case, he ends up going before the governor Felix. Neither one of them can make a, a full determination, so they're sent away, and they end up being kind of raised up to the king of the area. And in the case of Jesus, that means he then goes to Herod. And in the case of Paul... He goes to King Agrippa, only then to be sent back. Things continue to move in this parallel pattern for both Jesus and Paul. And then finally, both Jesus and Paul were found innocent, but yet they still endure suffering. Now this is where things take a little bit of a turn. This is where the comparison ends, because Paul, after all, is not Jesus And so Paul suffering means that he endures imprisonment and struggle and harsh travel and ultimately ends up under house arrest in Rome. And we know for Jesus, the ultimate punishment was to cross, to bear the pain of all of our sin so that we might have life through him. Do you see the complete similarity, the parallelism of how the two go together? The fate of Paul in a lot of ways follows after and patterns itself after the fate of Jesus. And the book ends with him just in house arrest. And maybe you turn the last page and you go, well, I didn't like that book. Where's the triumph of the church? This whole thing is about the starting of the church, the the flourishing of it and how God moves and and everything works out. Where, Where is that ending? Well, and I hate to disappoint you, but we don't have that ending. In all likelihood, Paul, we don't know exactly the circumstances of his death, but we we can kind of guess based on history that he was beheaded in Rome eventually. Uh, And the most likely guess that people have is that it was around 64 AD, because there was a series of of, of Christian persecution by by the emperor Nero after the fire in the city happened, where he just slaughtered a whole bunch of Christians. And so we we think, we, we guess that Paul was in that midst of Christians that were killed, and he ends up meeting the same fate as the Savior. He's, he's killed for his faith. And that's the real end of the book. So if you were wondering, the book closes, well, what happens next? Well, he dies. And we laugh, but there's a sorrow behind that. Because what would we rather have seen? Wouldn't we have loved to have seen Paul sail to church in Rome and show up and start to proclaim the gospel and have the largest church ever start of tens of thousands of people that still is going today and it's called St. Paul Church and we didn't work out quite in that way. And it might leave you defeated. Now, there's a verse that, that helps this. Um, and of all places, it's in the book of Luke. Uh, it helps us illuminate a little bit about what's going on here. And so it's, it's this, it's in Luke 21, verses 12 to 19. And Luke 21 is towards the end of Jesus' teaching ministry. It's very soon before the Passion narrative. And he's talking to the disciples and the people, and he's starting to tell them that the temple's going to be destroyed, and that there will be large amounts of wars and persecution and struggle. And then he says this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear 
witness. Now settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now when you read this, and you understand the predicament of Paul and the story of how he went from place to place, isn't it kind of nuts? Jesus described exactly what Paul was going to experience. He tells him, listen, you're going to be brought before kings and governors, check, right? <laughs> You're going to be delivered up to the synagogues and prisons. Check. You'll find yourself arrested. You may even die for my name. Check. Jesus called it. He tells the disciples exactly what will happen. And by the way, if you want to do some fun research, if, you have a, you know, if, you're, if you're having a down afternoon and you really want to pick me up, go home and look up how all the disciples, how the 12 eventually were killed. It's not a fun afternoon. Now, does that mean every one of us is going to be bludgeoned to death for our faith? No, that's not what we're saying. But there are some things that we can understand from this passage and from the whole of the book of Acts about the church as we wrap up this whole thing this morning. Here's a couple. Number one, God is absolutely sovereignly in charge of his people and his church. The common denominator through the entirety of the book of Acts is God is doing what he wants to do, bringing to pass what he wants to bring to pass through his spirit, using the people. There's only one main character in the book of Acts, and it's not Peter, and it's not Paul. It's the Lord at work through the faithfulness of his people. He uses those who will walk with him in obedience, and he carries out the mission of his church. Remember, Paul gets to Rome. Where did he want to go? Rome. He's there. And there is good news. Yes, he goes there. Yes, he's arrested. Yes, he dies. But he goes and he's able to speak freely and he's able to have people come to his place and he's preaching and proclaiming the gospel and he writes from Rome an unbelievable amount of the things that we get to read today. And he gets to build and encourage the church in this predicament. So the Lord uses Paul. It's just not in the majestic way that he expected to be used. But he is used. And the Lord uses Paul in Rome to flourish his church ultimately. The faithfulness of those in the book of Acts who, as 1.8 says, went to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth is why we sit here today. Because they were able and willing through the work of the Spirit to be obedient and carry out the gospel mission. And millions of Christians today have that groundwork to thank. But the primary mover in all of it is the Lord. Secondly, the church flourishes when its people obey in faithfulness. When Paul is told, don't go, it'll be dangerous, he casts everything, everything aside for the sake of the gospel. And again, not every one of us will lay our life down for the sake of the kingdom. You gotta be willing to. You do. And not just your life. We don't think about us in this building here at Stowe Prez being threatened. Now I can tell you that there's a whole bunch of Christian brothers this week on the other side of the globe who are feeling threatened. 
have some friends on the ground in various churches and in various institutions that are doing mission work and ministry work in Afghanistan. And there are people that are Christian there that are terrified. They were cowering in their basements, praying that the Lord would spare them, but ready to lay down their life when called upon. Maybe that's not us today, but there are things that the, God, that the Lord calls us to lay down instead. If this place, this church, is primarily your social club, <laughs> your place for singing music you like and being entertained in ways that you like, that's the wrong place you. There's a whole slew, and I'm not trying to tell anybody to leave, don't hear me wrong. There's a whole slew of, of church country club-like places that have forsaken the gospel that'll make you feel good every time you come through the door. And there are times that we will do that here, because the Lord does make us feel good occasionally, but when he does, it'll be through his word and his truth. Not because we just want to be nice. This place Still Presbyterian Church, more than anything, is Christ's bride, the church, that he will use to bring about and usher in his kingdom on earth. That's the reason this place exists. And everything we do has to order itself under that reason. How can we be part of God's business of ushering in the kingdom? How can we be part of understanding that there's people on that playground up the hill right now that have no idea what the saving power and grace of Jesus is all about? That have never experienced that grace and that mercy. That's the business that we ought to be about. Number three, being part of God's church is really costly. It is. I said last week that, you know, we see this trend of the church shrinking. I really don't believe that the church is really shrinking as much as we think it is. I think we're seeing a nominal Christianity start to die out. And I think we're seeing a faithful remnant remain and strengthening. There is an unbelievable cost to discipleship. There is. It requires that we lay things down. It requires that we come here willing to give more than we receive it requires that we come into this place and not think of ourselves and our desires and our preferences and our needs first, but first think of others. And we're willing to lay it down. And when we do that, I promise you, I promise you, the Lord will flourish his church. He will use it in a mighty way to bring about the kingdom. He will. None of the people in the book of Acts are exceptionally talented people. <laughs> I mean, gosh, two-thirds of the book is a murderer of Christians being used to change the world. What more convincing do we need that the Lord, in his power, will use the church in mighty ways? There is a cost involved in discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, <clears throat> in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is greatly titled, uh, says this, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. And such a grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. 
It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And so above all else, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But he delivered him up for us. And so costly grace is the incarnation of God. And that is the one thing that we must single-handedly proclaim in this place. And so my challenge to you this week is that we would be like Paul, that we would throw aside all things that hold us down, our fears, our worries, our busyness in our schedules, our weariness, our tiredness, our preferences, our desires, that we would cast them aside and that we would get behind the kingdom work of God and start to move as a church in the directions that he clearly calls us to go. That we would pray for those directions to become clearer and known. Sometimes it's hard to know. But there are universal truths about what God calls his church to do, and it's to be about the proclaiming of the word, the mission of his kingdom to love and serve those outside of these walls and to be a demonstration of that grace that we just read about outside of this building. Let us be about that. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for the fact that we have this account in the book of Acts where we don't have to wonder about how you started your church, but we can go and we can read and we can see the lives of real people doing real things under the guidance and direction of your spirit. Lord, we praise you for their faithfulness. As the saints that went before us who were willing to lay it all down, we praise you that because of them, we now stand here able and willing to worship you, O Lord. This week as we go out, we ask you would give us an undeniable burden through your spirit. You would allow us to feel for the people that don't know you. You would allow us to, to be in conversations with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our families and loved ones. That you would open doors and that you would give us words, Father, because your spirit ultimately is the one who will build this church up. Lord, we pray for the day where we don't have to concern ourselves with these things anymore, God, that you would come back. Every time we open your word, we just increasingly feel the words of John at the end of Revelation, and he says, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we're tired and we're weary. We're tired of having to think so much about these things and wonder where to go as a people and as a church and think about a vision of this place and all these things. We ask that you would come back soon so that we can be with you. We can praise and sing and lift up your name where there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears, no more disease, no more strife, no more ugly news, no more wars, no more suffering. Be with us this day. Strengthen us as we go out. Give us the words and the wisdom to be your people, that we would be your witnesses in Judea and Samaria, in our Jerusalem, all the way to the ends of the earth. We love you and praise you.
And all his people said, 